Welcome to the Resilience Rising podcast with me, your host, Jen Scottney. With the help of my guests, we will be getting curious about what resilience is, how we develop it, and the times we've used it. This podcast is here to explore all things resilience. I'm here with Aziz Musa. Aziz was the youngest public CEO in the UK and he had already made significant strides in the corporate world. However, it was his venture into Sudan in 2017 that sets him apart. Amidst a backdrop of political unrest and war, Aziz founded Kush Digital with the vision of building a digital economy. As challenges mounted, he was forced to relocate to Egypt. But today it stands as North Africa's premier digital marketing agency. Aziz's impact extends beyond his business success, though. In a bid to transform Sudan's digital landscape, he trained over 4,000 individuals in digital marketing entirely pro bono. This initiative catalyzed the birth of hundreds of startups, essentially laying the foundation for Sudan's burgeoning digital economy. Aziz's story is a testament to the power of resilience, vision and innovation. So I'm here to ask him all about resilience. Welcome to the podcast, Aziz. Thank you, Jen. Lovely to be here. It's so nice to talk to you. And I really would like, I'm really interested to start with what resilience means for you. I think resilience is being able to just accept what's in front of you. I think that that's the biggest challenge that I think I've faced and anyone who's gone through challenging times, I'm sure you face the same thing is the world in front of us at, at any given moment in time can be so insanely stressful and the reality of what's in front of us is created here in our minds and our ability to accept that without emotion or with managed emotions and kind of move through those situations. I think that's what it literally is. How one gets resilience or develops resilience, I think is a totally different is a totally different matter. But yeah, I think resilience I I, I through my business career ended up doing sort of therapy and to try and hone my skills if you like and one of the things that I learned is to just deal with what's in front of you not deal with the um, potential outcomes the the variables that might happen but just deal with the thing that's right in front of your eyes at that moment and um, and sometimes those things that are right in front of your eyes can be really, really challenging. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? But in practice, yes. I found that so much harder. <laughs> oh God, it's really difficult. It's really <laughs> difficult. And before we started, you know, you were telling me um, a little bit about yourself and um, and how you were a running coach, which mm. I, love, I love that, that you were a running coach. And I used to run as well um, a lot. And I think one of the things that people often associate running with is like training the body training you know your calf muscles especially like someone that's tall I'm six foot five so when I when I run I mean it hurts yeah it (laughs) hurts my calves and that's never really the value I got out of distance running the value I got out of distance running is training the mind to work through the pain to accept what it is and move through that and uh and that translates into everyday life I think I mean I've heard that you I didn't know that you'd done any running. It was the boxing that I'd heard that you were. I mean, talking about pain, do you, is it the same same as, as you've just described about running with, with boxing as well? It, it's very different. Um, the, the result is the same, 
um, and probably even more intense in, in boxing. So in boxing, what, you know, you're training physically and once you've gone through that sort of physical pain of, of training, when you get into the ring, even if you're just sparring, you're faced with a totally different pain. And it's something primal. It's something that sort of sits deep inside your soul and you never really know it's there until until it's there. And it's the fear of being hurt because you're putting yourself, you're literally putting yourself in harm's way. And what you tend to build is like the ability to accept that. And the, the, there's an ironic part to it, which is that if you don't accept it, you get hurt. And if you do, your mind is calm and you can move um, freely. But if you don't, then you're kind of static. You're half a second late. And in fact, half a second is the difference between being knocked out and not being knocked out. It's the difference between a broken nose and um, uh, a, a, a perfectly formed nose. So uh, you do end up training that. I remember the first time I got into the ring to spar was absolutely terrifying. But the more you do it, the more you learn to accept the, that yes, you're in harm's way, but if you aren't calm through it, you're actually going to be in harm and there's a difference. Okay. So that was going to be my question, whether that's something that you stepped into the ring with to start with, or that's something that you've developed, but it sounds like that is something you've developed. And and how did you develop that in terms of boxing? And then I think we can easily translate this into your business life, but was it just a matter of getting into the ring and, and feeling it and, and having that experience? Or was there other ways that you were training your mind to accept that pain and failure or a potential failure? Yeah, certainly through practice, right? So I don't think anyone's born with resilience. I don't think that that exists. I'm not sure it exists. I've never, I've never seen it in anybody. I think that you have to train it in business, in boxing, in running. Um, and I, I think that the more you do it, the more you go through that experience, the more your mind works out ways to sort of just stay calm, stay focused, stay relaxed. So practice is is the only thing. But there is there is an element of sort of um, self determination here too, which is that I chose I chose to do the difficult things, and I think in choosing to do the difficult things, you're putting yourself in harm's way and i'm not just talking about in a boxing contact uh, context in a business context in a running context and just in life by choosing to do the difficult things by choosing to do the things that you know will be painful you know will have an impact on you um personally physically mentally you kind of train your mind to accept difficulty almost as an enjoyable part of life as opposed to the challenge that it is Oh, so we have to relish these and and talk about your your business side of it in terms of the yeah the you've you've got so much experience there and I guessing with startups as well there is like I I think I often thought that well the ones that fail and have these huge setbacks they don't make it and the ones that sail through are the ones that we see rising to the top but I'm guessing that isn't true at all that actually there's a lot of setbacks for everybody in business is it the same same as you've just described for the boxing going into the business yeah i think that nobody nobody sails through business it just doesn't happen <laughs> uh, i think that what we end up seeing is you know the old uh, the analogy of the iceberg you you see the last 10% and the rest is ha- happening underneath or the duck on water with the 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 feet paddling and you can only see the calmness on top nobody sails through it um but 
I've worked with a lot of startups. I've obviously got my own companies too. And um, startups around the world that are successful all have, the founders have one single trait, which is their um, unwillingness to give up. They simply aren't willing to quit on an idea. And I think that that's probably <clears throat> the biggest, most powerful trait. And the science behind this as well, I think Harvard did a study 15 years ago, but no, more than that, because they, they, they tracked children uh, all the way through to their careers. And they found that the single biggest determining factor was grit, um, the, the willingness of the person to um, endure pain, be that you know, in this case, uh, mental pain, but uh, the willingness to endure pain, because again, the reality of what's in front of you is is almost always less significant than the pain that's in your mind. And what I really mean by that is that our worst nightmares happen in our mind, and very rarely happen in front of us. And we tend to um, disasterify situations. And actually, if you train yourself to just yet yeah, consider possibilities, because that's really important for contingency planning, for mental planning, but but only actually deal with the reality that's in front of you, I think people would live just a happier life, firstly, and they'd be more successful. So in the business world, how that translates is that, yeah, things may not be going great today, but just don't give up, just don't quit, right? Because actually, you never fail until you quit. If you just keep going, if you just do the next thing, whatever the next thing is, you just do that next thing and you keep doing the next thing for as long as you're doing the next thing, you've not failed. I like that, that it's only, that isn't failure, is it? It's just, and I remember when I spoke to the, like I interviewed a writer about rejection and I kept saying about all these failures and he was, he, he actually just called them setbacks I think and obstacles and and so maybe just being more conscious when I use the word failure could really help I was just thinking about that acceptance and being such a key part of it but then I also I thought that being part a, a good business owner would be about predicting the future and the risks and having contingency plans and does that not have a tendency then to think of everything that could go wrong and is that helpful or do we need to stop stop worrying about that and maybe relinquish some control? Yeah, that's such a great question. And um, because there is a balance to be had. Okay. Because you're absolutely right. You you could think of all of the variables and then put yourself into like a quagmire of, oh, well, then if any of this goes, happens, <laughs> then it's going to fail anyway. What's the point? I may as well quit today. <laughs> and so it's a discipline that the, the, the act of continuously planning is a discipline. And it isn't, you know, the key is to just do it without emotion, just look at facts. And I think a good example of this is, you know, whilst we're in, in Sudan, so I, you know, I moved to Sudan eight years ago, um, really to set up a so social enterprise to try and I don't know, find some more meaning in life as opposed to being like a, um, you know, an investor led corporate guy. And, um, we, you know, Sudan for anyone who doesn't know is sort of, uh, South of Egypt and has had sort of political turmoil for 30 odd years. And it was under sanctions for, for a long time. So there was no digital economy essentially. And so, you know, I wanted to go and help sort of build the digital economy. And we set out contingency plans for, what happens if there is a coup? And that happened twice whilst we were there. there. And you know, we wrote those contingency plans without ever thinking that that might happen, but knowing that we would have a plan. 
because as a digital agency, you can live without electricity, you can live without water, but you don't have internet and you basically you're done. So we had to have contingency plans for what if there's a coup and they cut the internet and we had them and we were able to execute them. But then, of course, you know, coming back to only deal with what's in front of you. I remember at that time, which was 2019, there were um, protests, mass protests with tens, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people on the streets. Um, people were being killed. And uh, and I remember sort of my, my team, they were always coming into the office stressed and high, you know, highly emotional. And they would always ask me, why aren't you? You don't seem to care. And, and I would explain that it's not that I don't care. I obviously do care. But the thing that you're describing isn't happening right in front of my eyes. And I take that quite literally. I mean, it was happening three miles away, yeah? But it wasn't here, right now, right in front of me. And therefore, I didn't need to deal with it. And so that really enabled us to just stay focused on what it is that we needed to achieve and to continue to grow through that period. And then, of course, we had a contingency plan for what if a war broke out? What if the airport was closed? What if we had to evacuate? And I say thankfully, I mean, it, it's just, war is a, just a horrific thing, but to some extent, I'm glad that it did happen right in front of my eyes. It started right in front of the office, right in front of our house. Uh, we could see the people, the the two sort of armies fighting in front of us and people being killed in front of us. And and it, it crystallized um, the reality that, you know, I had to act immediately. And so, um, yeah, sometimes I think I take that to an extreme, the concept of if it's not happening right in front of me, I don't deal with it. Although it has served me well, I guess one day it might, you know, it might be happening just behind me and I don't notice. But it sounds like you had contingency <laughs> plans. I mean, it must have just been horrific when the fighting started in front of you. I'm guessing that was back in April. Why were you in Sudan in the first place? Did you have a connection to Sudan? My family are originally from Sudan. Right. So I've, although I've never lived there, uh, we used to go on holiday all the time. And um, like you said in the introduction, I, you know, I worked at like lastminute.com and photobox and moonpig.com and these big companies in the UK. And then I was the CEO of a public company. And I'd always been sort of a corporate I'm I'm very hesitant to use the term that I really want to use because it's a bit offensive, but it's how I see it. I was always a corporate monkey, just like a corporate guy going from investor offices to lawyers' offices to, and it was just so relentless. And and over time, I I found it to be quite meaningless. Okay, so what was motivating you at the time? I, I think at the time, you know, I was being motivated by what is normal for someone who has got my background, who has, you know, I've got a, uh, you know, uh, top 10 global MBA and, and just pure ambition, just raw mm. ambition, actually. I think it was just raw ambition. I always wanted to be a public company CEO. I always wanted to be successful in business. And and I think once I'd gotten to that point... <laughs> I was going to say, you achieved that really young, didn't you? So... Yeah. <laughs> I think when I, once I'd gotten to that point, I realized that I, I never really wanted those things for myself or more. No, I think I realized that the things that I wanted weren't meaningful. They they really didn't have much meaning. Um, I mean, I'm very, very fortunate, and I never sort of, uh, I, I'll never 
downplayed that because I'm very fortunate for, for lots of things. You know, I got the genetic lottery. I got the being born in the UK lottery. I, I won lots of lottery tickets, right, which had nothing to do with me. You know, I got like a, a father who was a doctor. Like I, I got lots of lottery tickets. So I'm very, very fortunate. I never looked down on that. But the reality is that I, I achieved lots of things and never felt like I achieved anything. And um, it took a lot of soul searching and like lots of time me and my wife just discussing for me to realize that actually the only real meaning is life is 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 helping others. Like the only time anyone that I know ever feels truly satisfied is when they help others. And then then my ambition kicks in because, you know, maybe that's just part of my genes. And I was like, okay, so how can we do that on a big scale? And, well, we know that Sudan has been in sanctions for 30 years. What that means, being under sanctions for 30 years, think about the evolution of technology over the last 30 years. There was no Facebook advertising. There were Facebook, but you never saw a Facebook ad. You couldn't have a Twitter account in Sudan. You couldn't, there, there were lots of things. And this is, I'm not talking about 20 years, I'm talking about in, in 2017 when we moved. And so we said, okay, so the entire digital economy doesn't exist. What if we just went over there and helped build a digital economy? And that was my mindset. And I went, honestly, we set up Kush Digital as a social enterprise. I had one financial objective, and that was to not lose money. That was it. That was my objective. So I, I set it up, and we, we set up a whole training program. And, and then what happened was that because we were training these, we only hired graduates, and we were training them to like an international level, an international standard of digital marketing. And we were getting clients, even though we weren't trying to get clients. And one client became two, and then they would recommend others, and that became four and eight. And, and suddenly, we found ourselves with like the biggest digital marketing agency in the region. And that wasn't the objective. The objective was always to have a vehicle that we could train people through. And so that spawned like doing a free digital marketing training because now, you know, we were making profit. And so now I could invest, literally invest into um, doing free training. And that's what we did. I ended up training like 4,000 people entirely free of charge. They just had to turn up to the training. Um, and from that, hundreds of startups were born. And I can't describe how satisfying it is that you know you can mentor a startup in the uk and you feel great when they are successful and that's good maybe you get a bit of uh, script and you've got a bit of equity in there and you feel like you've got some skin in the game and that's nice uh when you help a startup in in sudan they feed their families that money puts food on the table that is the difference between them having one meal a day or two meals a day and so it's just an entirely different level of personal satisfaction. Um, but that in itself required a lot of resilience because there were lots and lots of times where, you know, my wife was like, are you sure we shouldn't go back to, to, um, to, to Brighton or to, you know, to the South of England? I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that this is what we're supposed to be doing right now. It, and, it really felt right. Okay, that's what I was going to say, Like, because it would have been easier, I'm sure, to go somewhere else. But you really felt that, it sounds like you felt that sense of purpose that you perhaps hadn't had in other places. Absolutely. And it's one of those strange things, and I still take, to say it to, to people who start training with us now, is that you, you are taught to train, you are trained to sort of chase money and chase your career. 
and that's good and it's valuable and you will learn a lot through that process but at some point in life if you're lucky enough like I was lucky enough and if you're lucky enough at some point in life you'll realize that the only true satisfaction in life is helping others and everything else is just a a way to achieve that and we have that like in our western mindset we've got that upside down right we go we're gonna do all the successful things as we define it that being financially successful and financially independent and all that and then we're gonna help people and that's even this concept of philanthropy you know we we become multi-billionaires and then we give the money away through philanthropy and there's of course that's a fantastic thing but it seems strange to me that that would be our satisfaction at the end of our lives that we would that we would help people and that's how we become satisfied i feel like if everyone just dedicated a few hours a week to helping others they just have a more fulfilled life listen i want to be clear though because i say that sometimes and people think that i'm like uh, they they make assumptions about my um my sort of philosophies on life listen i am a capitalist right i have oh. always <laughs> been a capitalist <laughs> But I just think capitalism has gone awry. I just think what the concept of capitalism is, because capitalism should be good for the founders, should be good for the the investors, it should be good for the customers. And if it's not good for the customers, they are able to switch. But most importantly, it should be good for the society, the employees. Like, and we've kind of at some point we've forgotten that last one mm. and we've focused almost entirely on the investor side and so i think capitalism done well is good for everyone and capitalism done badly is well it's, we can yeah it. we can see that it reminds me of like a, a meme or like a quote that said like the the planet doesn't need more successful people it needs peacemakers and leaders and storytellers and healers and things but from what you're saying is that you do believe that there can be this conscientious business and capitalism that where everybody benefits from it absolutely uh, yeah absolutely look i don't that is what capitalism is for me Mm. It just is that like, and I think we've only ever seen glimpses of it. I've never seen it in my lifetime. I've read of glimpses of it in the fifties and sixties. And, and I think that there are, there are companies who still espouse it. Of course, you, you still see companies who, who do that. Um, but as a general concept, we've become so relentlessly focused on chasing paper, basically that. We've forgotten what it is. I don't know. I don't want to like over dramatize it, but I just get a sense that we've forgotten what it's what it is to be human. To be mm. human is the difference between us and you know um, your dogs or the dogs that are in front of me here or or other animals. The difference isn't that we have the um, mental capacity to think. Dolphins have the me- mental capacity to think. The difference is that we have a soul, and that soul connects us all together, and that should be the driving force. That shouldn't be like an afterthought. That's like the driving force. That's the thing that we should all be work- working towards. And capitalism can achieve that. It just doesn't. It chooses not to. And that sort, that approach and that philosophy that you have, do you think it is linked to the humanitarian tragedies that you've seen? I mean, you do you feel like you'd still have that belief if you had just stayed in a nice office in Canary Wharf or something like that. But I was, you know, in Sudan, you really saw some horrific things that must really affect 
your outlook on life and us as humans? I think that those things um, crystallized that mentality, but wasn't that wasn't the source mm. of it. The source was my upbringing. Yeah, the source was definitely my upbringing. My father, in particular, and um, you know, my, my dad was a doctor, and so in and of itself, being a doctor is a selfless act. Um, but more importantly than that is the things that I saw growing up, particularly when we came on holiday to Sudan, uh, when we went. Uh, to different parts of, you know, I went on holiday to Syria once. The things that I saw and the way that those things were explained to me really made me realize that actually, like, there is no real difference between any of us. These things mm. that we call borders are man-made. And and actually, the only satisfaction, my dad really wanted me to be a doctor, right? Because all doctors want their kids to be doctors. <laughs> Sadly, I did not have the IQ to be able to be a doctor. He is like on a different level. And I just, well, that plus I was really, really bloody lazy. Like studying, <laughs> studying was just not something I was enjoying. Um, but nonetheless, the act of selflessness, not, listen, not at the detriment of the self. Right. Selflessness, but not at the detriment of, we still live a great lifestyle, you know, mm. like we're very, very fortunate in that where we live and the thing, the things that we have and all of those things, we, you know, at no point um, would I say that we're, you know, we're, we're entirely selfless because of course we're not, but the idea that you can be good to yourself and good to others simultaneously, I think is the thing that my dad uh, sort of instilled in us. Mm. And just thinking when you were talking about what a resilient person looked like, and I think you used the words like calm and focused and making these decisions without emotion, how how was that when you were then going back to your time in Sudan and you said that fighting broke out in front of you, literally, and then you had to move away and evacuate? Like, I just feel like that must have been such an emotional time. How did you cope with that? Like what happened and how did you get through it? So I think every challenge that I've been through had led up to that point. And if I hadn't gone through all of those challenges before that point, I would have reacted very differently. But I'll just tell you sort of factually how I reacted. My uh, my first reaction was obviously to protect my children and my, my wife, right? So that was the first thing. So um, it happened during Ramadan which meant that like you normally you sleep in during Ramadan, but we were woken up by anti-aircraft fire happening in front of us. And so the first thing is having a story for the kids and making sure the kids, you know, know that they're in no danger and know that they're comfortable, even if deep inside I was worried that they were in danger. Um, and so once we'd gotten to that point, the decision-making itself wasn't particularly difficult. Once we knew that it wasn't like a, a three-hour scuffle, that this was a war happening, it wasn't something um, that was going to just stop. Uh, the decision-making kind of had already been made, but convincing others was more of a challenge. I think the way that I stayed calm was acceptance. I, I have to say that like, having faith, you know, being a person of faith um, helped a lot. Like, uh, as a, it doesn't, I don't think it necessarily matters what faith it is. I happen to be Muslim, but it, you could be Christian or Jewish or Hindu or whatever it is. You know, you can believe in anything, but the belief in a higher power and a higher purpose, I think, um, really helped me personally just stay focused on uh, what was really important in that moment of time. And then knowing 
you know, I remember writing straight after when we sort of evacuated into Egypt because I felt like I had to get everything out. And I wrote a series of posts on LinkedIn, a series of articles on LinkedIn. And there is a specific moment that happened when we were evacuating and we we had a maid and we had to take her to another part of the city and to, to go to her husband. And we had to cross a bridge and we crossed this bridge and there was a bus there somehow and we put the maid on the bus. And there was just a horrific smell. Like a, you can't, I can't even describe the rancid. You could almost taste it. It was horrific. And she was saying, "Oh, what's that smell?" I said, "Don't worry about it. Just go on the bus." And I knew what it was because I could see to my left was just like a pile of dead soldiers, um, roughly covered with tarpaulin. And I remember writing, "It's rare in life that you arrive at a moment that you know it is being etched with a rusty blade." into your memory and as soon as i wrote that i thought okay so now i need to like release all of this so you know i guess acceptance that these things were traumatic and they're gonna be traumatic at this moment but you can deal with the trauma later right now you just need to be focused that kind of helped i can't really answer it any better than that because i really don't know i just know that like the hard work was done in the you know, the 30 years before, the willingness to put myself in difficult positions, the willingness to train my mind to stay calm in difficult situations, all of those things all came together at that moment. Obviously, I didn't know or hope or expect that moment to ever come, but it did. And I was able to stay calm because of those things before it. Wow, that sounds absolutely horrific. Thank you for going through that and sharing that. And and also, although it's something that you've been able to to get away from you you're based in Egypt this is something that people in Sudan are still living with isn't it and absolutely uh, and it, it's sort of a daily terror that, that they're living in we're very fortunate that we were able to evacuate a lot of people and to this day we're still able to evacuate people and um, through the money that we make through through Kush Digital which has been really helpful uh, and yeah I think that you know the world is in such a weird place right now and you know you, you jump on Twitter and see all these Twitter warriors saying oh we've got to we should just annihilate them and talking about war as though it's some sort of like PS5 game. Mm. I just feel like if any if any of those people actually tasted war for half a second, they would never wish that on anybody. Even their worst enemies, they would never wish that on anybody. It is not something a human being could ever wish for for somebody else. It's 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 unbelievable. And with the war that we're seeing both in Sudan and Gaza and and other areas like do you does it shake your belief in humans nature i have heard on this podcast people say oh we have to believe in the the true um like good spirit of humans and that most people are, are good but i find that really hard when we look at some of the photos and the videos that are coming out i mean how do you feel like it's shaped your view on the world and humans i i uh... I agree with the people who have said that to you. I think that uh, in the end, humans are are good. In in the end, we as people, we're good. We have good within us, and sometimes the bad can just overtake the good. I don't change my perspective on what it is to be human, what it is to to be loving. I don't. I think that what we're seeing stems from greed, and and particularly uh, greed from like leaders you know leaders and greed and i think that actually like you know if we if we're really honest with ourselves 
we've been through worse periods. Like in in human history, we've been through worse periods. This is probably the the most peaceful we've ever had planet Earth, and it's the most prosperous we've ever had planet Earth. At least in in our memory, you know, we aren't walking down the streets worrying about you know getting syphilis, are we? This is these aren't things that. We have running water, and we have uh, sanitation, and we have abundance of food, and we have all of these great things. And yes, there's war, but if we compare it to just even the 70s, you know, we we think about the 70s, I mean, 60s and 70s, we think about Vietnam. You know, there were so many more wars happening uh, in the 60s and 70s than just Vietnam. And right now, the fact that you and I could probably list off all of the wars happening on Earth, the fact that we're even able to do that probably proves that actually we're in a better position than we ever were and i also think that we are moving to a point where we're able to where we're going to be forced to hold our leaders more accountable to for the decisions that they make you know sudan will come out of this situation and and whatever happens however it comes out of of the war um, the Sudanese people just won't allow that to happen again. Um, I just, I just can't see them ever allowing that to happen again. And the, the signs were so obvious for all of us, and we all just ignored the signs. And I just don't think that we'll ever allow those signs to be ignored again. So, no, I, I don't think, I don't think there's any reason for anyone to doubt the innate goodness of humanity. I just don't. I think that we are good, and, and we, you know, we have to be objective about what's happening in the world. Um, so yeah, the war was awful. But then, what about the experience of leaving the war, where uh, you know we we were driving down the road and our car broke down, and a small village with like thirty people all came out with food. Mm-hmm. They all came out with food and water on their on their table, and the, and they brought beds and said, "Have a little nap here. We'll fix your car for you, and you can go on." And what about when we crossed over the border into Egypt? And the reporters, there's so many reporters there. And uh, the reporters came to us. And the first thing they said is that, don't think you've ever left home. You've just arrived at your new home. Can you imagine that? Like, you've got thousands of people crossing a border. And the reporters, those who are supposed to hold people to account, the first thing they say is that. And then when we got to Aswan and the sheer humanity of people bringing you food, bringing you, you know, for people who don't have a place to, to stay, they're just letting them stay in their homes. No, the, the good in the world outweighs the bad a million to one, but the bad is easier to focus on. Mm, yeah. Yes. Oh, that's a really good reminder. Thank you. And I wish that my country could be as welcoming as that, whereas some people are, but generally um, not quite as I want it at the moment. Um, and we were talking about how we, yes, we want to help others, but we need to help ourselves first. I guess it's that you kind of can't pour from an ent- empty cup. And I just wondered whether you had any practices or routines or anything that really helped you to to look after yourself and be available then for, for the work that you do. Are you going to tell me that you get up boxing at 3 a.m. in the morning and that I need to yeah. have a cold shower? Yeah. And do all... <laughs> I do have cold showers, though. Oh, okay. <laughs> Another one ticking on that list. <laughs> yeah, no, I got to, um, listen, I'm going to have that one, right? Listen, I'm not healthy. Uh, <laughs> when Before we got on this call, I was just drinking a giant mug of coffee. I had about three cigarettes already. So I'm not like, I'm not, I'm not that guy. You know, I read, the 5 <laughs> I, I read the 5 a.m. club and thought, 
Good for you. <laughs> oh, you don't know how refreshing it is to hear this. <laughs> no, um, but listen, I do have routine. I think the one thing that really helps me is having fixed routines. Uh, so I do have very fixed routines, um, which like I start my day and I end my day with fixed routines. So, um, for example, you know, when I do get up, I get up and I make a, a um, my like, breakfast shake and I make my coffee and my wife's coffee. and this is after my cold shower i have to have a cold shower just to wake up it's gotten to the point if i have a warm shower i'm tempted to go back to sleep (laughs) i mean you do have you do live in a warmer country than the uk so (laughs) what's the temperature where you are right now freezing it's like literally freezing (laughs) so it's yeah that's you're right even our cold showers aren't ice cold um so like i have my morning routine i have my nighttime routine and i try and have like a week routine like things that i want to get done throughout the week and try and sort of organize my time to to do that but i think the thing that helps me most is because we've all got a thousand priorities right you've got 500 things that you could be doing right now uh, but you're choosing to do this and you've got your reasons for choosing to do this and so, so do i i think that's the key is selecting to do the things that have the most impact that's like i try and live that way i do the things that i think will have the most impact given the list of things that i could do um so oftentimes that means i will choose to um help my son with his homework because that's going to have the most impact it won't have the most impact today but in the long term will have the most impact uh and and we do the same thing with our clients right so a lot of digital marketing agencies they'll say oh we'll do you 30 posts a month and we'll do you three email campaigns and we'll do um whatever it is, you know, we'll do your paid ads. But what we do is we say, what are the things that are actually going to change your business? What do you want? You want new customers? Where do you want those customers from? And it may mean that we only do six posts and only two tactics, but we do the things that will make an impact. That's it. That's why people keep coming back to us is because we don't just do the stuff. We do the stuff that's actually going to impact your business. That's how I live my life, really. I try and just do the stuff that's going to make the biggest impact. That's really good advice because it means that I don't need to do this long list of morning routines. I can just think about being a bit more discerning and actually what's going to make a difference. And you mentioned like your family there. And I just, I wondered how much that support network, whether that's family, faith, or people that you're working with, how much is that relevant to resilience? Because I think often we see this idea of a resilient leader where they don't need that support they don't need that help and everybody can you can just get on with it yourself but for you how much is it part of it isn't there a famous saying behind every great man's a great woman no uh, behind every great leader's a great woman, wife or something like that and there's a reason that exists because that's 100 percent true i mean my wife is a leader in and of herself she's a successful cfo i was going to say we can have female leaders (laughs) but yes i see the sentiment in that there's you're not doing it alone no like nobody does Mm. there's no there's no individually successful person anyone who you think is independently successful without a great husband or wife next to them or without um, brothers and sisters supporting them it's, it's foolish nobody nobody just makes it by themselves not even tyrannical uh, monsters make it by even the starlin had like the love of his life like nobody makes it <laughs> by themselves so um i think that's critical i think it's a prerequisite of 
of being able to be resilient is you've got to have, I think of it like a pressure cooker, right? So everyone can, if you view like humans as pressure cookers, there's only so much pressure the pressure cooker can take before it explodes, unless you have a valve to release some of the pressure. And I think certainly I am my wife's valve and she is my valve. And so we tend to release the pressure from each other just through discussion and advice and helping each other deal with our challenges and i yeah i think that's that's critical and of course you know we're for, we, you know we're people of faith as well and so that helps us um and i yeah i think that nobody's independently resilient or independently successful that, that that's mythical i think yeah i might be wrong no i think it's really good to hear and also it sounds like you have a lot of gratitude for your parents and the upbringing and the luck that we've had just through that privilege as well. So it sounds like, do you, well, do you think that that being grateful and having that practice of gratitude is something that that is makes you be resilient, but also be that kind human as well? Yeah, like um, I don't put. Although I read a lot of everything, actually, I read all sorts of nonsense. But the, I read uh, a lot of. I don't want to call them self-help books, but I don't know what else to call them, so I'm going to call them self-help books. And they say, you know, you should practice 15 minutes of gratitude every morning and all of this stuff. And uh, for the most part, I don't put any stock in that. But when it comes to gratitude, I mean, it really does have an impact. Mm. It's very difficult to be grateful and upset at the same time. I don't think it's possible to be grateful and accept. I think if you're actively being grateful for what you have, I think that has such a, sh- a shift in your mindset again this comes back for me it comes back to faith as muslims we pray five times a day and in every prayer as part of like a, as a tenant of, ev- of every prayer we we are um thankful and grateful for all the things that we have and just that act i mean damn it look at us man you're in england i'm in egypt we're talking as if we're face to face like we're having a conversation we live in the best time in history. Just that. How can we not be grateful for that? <laughs> yeah, no, I completely agree. And I'm so grateful that I get to talk to you. And um, what else is coming up for you? And where where do you see your businesses going? Or what do you, are you somebody that sets really huge goals? Is there anything that you could tell us? Uh Yes, I used to set really, really ambitious goals, and I still do. Every year, we've just finished, like the day before yesterday, we had our whole company day, and we all set our personal goals. And I still do that every year, because I think it's just a good exercise for everyone to have goals, even if you know they're, they're not necessarily going to be achieved. So I still do that as a process. Uh, as a business, you know, um, we're in a position now in Aswan where we're able to do good again. We're able to just hire fresh graduates out of university, put them through our, like, proprietary training program and we're building the business in in that way and i'm really happy doing that i'm really happy seeing like young 20 year olds develop so quickly and opening up opportunities so after the war a lot of people obviously evacuated we chose to evacuate here um and of course going back to england was an option but I, i just really wanted to continue the work that we were doing and um some of our team chose to evacuate and lots of other sudanese people to the uae to dubai and one of the most satisfying things you know how dubai is it's a really competitive job market but one of the most satisfying things is that every single person that worked with us is now working in dubai in a really good job being very well paid and the vast majority of people who have gone from sudan to to the uae have not 
being able to find work. And for me, that's like a validation of our training. It's like a validation of the thing that we were trying to do to instill this culture into people. And so given that it worked, I just like, uh, I think I'd like to just keep doing that. I think I'd like to just keep having that, that impact on people and enjoying it. I've got four kids and one of them is two years away from university. <laughs> and I kind of feel like I've got these next two years. And then after that, uh, I gotta, I gotta give all my focus over, over there. And so, yeah, uh, I'm going to enjoy the next couple of years doing that. They sound really nice goals. Just keep, keep with the impact, keep doing what you're doing. I'm pretty happy and look after your kids. And, and yes, I sometimes wondered whether it was business people that you were supposed to be stretching and going for world domination and those sort of things, but you've really sound quite grounded. So thank you. If you, uh, if you asked me 10 years ago, when I was a CEO of a public company, <laughs> my answer would have been very different. In fact, if you look hard enough, you can probably find my answer somewhere. Uh, on what YouTube. would that have been? Uh, it, it would have been about um, doubling the top line and uh, reducing our, sorry, increasing our, our drop down to EBITDA and attacking the North American market and <laughs> opening up an office in Australia. And it would have been uh, dry and relentlessly ambitious, but all for the purpose of other people, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh. So we, I did all of those things, by the way. Okay. <laughs> but they <just laughs> went as satisfying as I expected them to be. All right. I just thought it was like, oh, no, I'm tired. What are your goals for this year? Um, well, I've got another operation looming. I've got a house move to Scotland. And really, after that, I just want to spend some more time outside <laughs> and less time working. <laughs> you're gonna be in the best bit anti-capitalist sorry but <laughs> um but yes you know that i've had a previous life as a lawyer and um so so my goals look very different now what we've probably been on similar paths in that way in that we both kind of had like a really intense career mm. uh, although yours was you know um in, in slightly different field but a, a really intense period of time and we're kind of enjoying the or looking forward at least to the to the part where we get to just chill a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than just try and desperately escape to places where Wi-Fi can't catch us. I mean, do you yeah. think age has a has a point of that? I just feel like I don't have the the energy that I had as a twenty year old. I definitely don't have the energy I had as a twenty year old. Um I think the age it's so horrible because I say it knowing that people said this to me when I was in my twenties. <laughs> I think that age just gives you like more perspective. If mm. that's all it does, just gives you a bit more perspective, makes you realize what's more important. I always used to, you know, when I was younger, people always used to say, you know, money doesn't make you happy. And I'd be like, yeah, that's not true. That's <laughs> not true, is it? Right. And then I ended up having money and going, damn it, money really doesn't make you happy. <laughs> So um, it, it, there are some things I think that you won't believe until you experience. So I think that maybe just age brings experience and allows you to see things in a different perspective. Yeah, yeah. There's plenty of things I was told as a 20-year-old that I wasn't listening to because I felt like I knew better. Uh, and if you had to, well, maybe that was it, what you just said, but if it just like one of the biggest lessons that you've learned about resilience, what would that be? It's trainable and it's really easy to train it. Just choose to do the difficult thing. Just choose to do that difficult thing. Like, and it doesn't have to be like insanely difficult from day one. I'm saying like, 
you got a list of things that you can do, and one of them is difficult, do that one, right? And then next day, do the difficult thing. And then the next day, do the difficult thing. And if you just keep doing the difficult thing, you can train resilient. If you keep putting yourself in positions where you have to be resilient, you end up being resilient. Oh, thank you. I'm going to take that with me and do the stuff that I've been avoiding today. (laughs) (laughs) But it wasn't a cold shower. Izzy, thank you so much for giving us all your experiences and wisdom and saving us the hassle of getting all that money to find out that it didn't make us happy. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's been brilliant to talk to you. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for listening to the Resilience Rising podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do help people find us by hitting subscribe, leaving a review or sharing us with others. Thank you so much and see you next time on the Resilience Rising podcast.